This podcast is brought to you by The People's Podcast, three friends sharing laughs and opinions on pop culture, social media, and a world of other topics. Download The People's Podcast now wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. So we're still trying to figure out the kinks of recording at home, just like everyone who is at home during these stay at home orders and still trying to uh, stay connected with everybody. Uh, We've done a few episodes, but we had to work out the kinks and the technology side of it got the better of us. And so while we work out those kinks and and troubleshoot those issues and try to bring you some new episodes, I want to bring you back to a few episodes we had in the past. Uh, The first one is with Isaiah Thomas. He's a current city council member at large, and we had a conversation with him prior to his election. And we talked a lot about what got him into politics. Uh, We talked about the makeup of Philadelphia being a high poverty city. Uh, We talked about education and the gig economy. And we talked a lot about what reshaping our society looks like and could look like under a democratic city and with him in office and some of the ideas that he could possibly bring to the table. And as I had that conversation and was listening to that from my previous episodes, it really had me thinking about the current moment that we are in today. This is a fantastic opportunity to really reshape our society, to work for the most underprivileged communities. And it's really important for everyone that's out there to make sure we are thinking critically about how to do that in this moment. There's so much at stake. There's so much of a burden that we're putting on our healthcare system. There's so much of a burden we're putting on our kids and our education system. And I think it's incredibly important to take this moment and understand the holes that our society had prior to a pandemic and make sure that those holes are filled before we decide to reopen society and get back to things as normal. And I bring you a segment of the conversation I had with current city council member at large, Isaiah Thomas, coming up right after this break. Hey, everybody. I know throughout this pandemic, everyone has been saying we're all in this together. Well, here at Salas Corner, I want to really hear from you and what you're enduring during this pandemic. Give us a call, leave us a voice memo, and we'll play that on our next episode of Salas Corner. That number is 267-225-5891. Share with me your thoughts, your feelings, things that you're doing to survive during this pandemic, and you'll get your memo featured on the next episode of Salas Corner. I, I, I get pretty nerdy sometimes, and I was reading the study that referenced uh, Philadelphia being um, the of the 10 biggest cities having the largest uh, or highest poverty rate. Mm-hmm. And I started to dive into it a little bit. And one of the things that stuck out to me was the income disparities between those who have even just some mm-hmm. college education mm-hmm. versus those who have a uh, high school diploma. The difference was about 15 points. Sure, especially in this city, right? Because we don't have a whole lot of manufacturing jobs, right? right? We, we offer a terrible minimum wage as far as the state of Pennsylvania. And we don't see enough of an effort as far as organizing and putting people in a position to be able to create new innovative economies. Look, if we're not going to, first of all, we have to change our curriculum so young people are learning coding and technology. And I talked about a bunch of things that needs to change within our curriculum in our schools, right? But even if, even while we're doing that for the next generation, 
right? What about my generation, right? right? What about the folks who went yeah. to those feelings? We still living in poverty. Oh yeah, and and and, and, not, and we deserve an opportunity to earn a quality living for ourselves and our family, mm-hmm. right? Let's look at something like Uber and Lyft, right? Let's regulate the gig economy. Let's say that we're not going to allow Uber and Lyft to operate the way they operate. We're going to turn those jobs into city service jobs where people can work for the city, provide those same quality service, and earn a good wage for themselves and their family. You know, I'm a big fan of of taking risks. Let's look at the manufacturing world, right? Let's talk to the eds, the meds, the beds, the schools, the hospitals, um, and the hotels in the city of Philadelphia, and let's get them to coordinating their manufacturing per- Purchases locally, right? Mm. Now we're 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 putting a spark into the local economy as far as low skill level work because that's what we have to think about. We have to think about the generations of people who went to failing schools, who were over police, who've been incarcerated, who's been unfairly given records and putting hurdles in the putting hurdles in their life where it limits their opportunity to provide a quality living for themselves and their family. Are we now telling them they have to leave Philadelphia? Because if they're not leaving and they're going to stay, which is what I want them to do, we got to be innovative in how we think about earning a quality living for themselves and the family. And what do those wages look like? Because right now, $8 an hour, that's not going to get it. In the city of Philadelphia, teachers make $42,000 a year to start. Most teachers work a second job. Right. That's unheard of. My son's in first grade. I'd want his teacher to go home, mark some papers, get some rest, plan his lesson plan for the next day, not go work her part-time job or his part-time job. We need teachers making $60,000 a year to start. That's what we need. And until we start to think about these things um, on a level that we really recognize the impact it's having on our communities, we're going to continue to see these cycles of poverty. We're going to continue to see cycles of gun violence, issues of homelessness. Now, in the morning time, I try to spend time at, at train stations. And earlier in the week, I was at Fern Rock, and I was talking to a woman who's 40 years old, who's getting on a train. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say she's exactly 40, but she looked like Probably. she was in her 40s. She's getting on a train, and she's on her way to uh, college, right, to mm-hmm. go get her associate's degree. But she's also homeless. Wow. And she talked about homeless in the sense of, you know, um, I'm living with my aunt. Uh, for the next couple of days. Then after I stay with my aunt for the next couple of days, I'm going to go stay with my cousin for the next couple of days. Right. Wow. And so her, pers- she, she said she was, she's in the process of being educated. She understood that she was homeless. But when we think about homeless and poverty in Philadelphia, often we think about the person that's laying on the ground that we walk past. We think of Kensington. We think of Kensington. We mm-hmm. think of center city. We think of what happens at 52nd and market and some of the train stations yeah. that we walk past. That's not real homelessness in Philadelphia. That's homelessness. I'm not saying it's fake, but the core problem of homelessness isn't necessarily the homelessness that we see on a consistent basis. It's that person that's waking up every day, that's fighting, that's working hard, but still can't put themselves in a position where they could provide a quality living for themselves and their family because of the cost of living in comparison with the, earn, the opportunity to earn a quality wage. You know, we're, we're delivering a message right now to constituents of Philadelphia, and it's not one that I'm a fan of. That was my interview with the city council member at large, uh, Isaiah Thomas. And, um, you know, I think back to that conversation and I look at this moment today and, you know, in that moment, we had a huge disrespect for how we treated what we call today essential workers. Right. Those customer service jobs, those people that are on the front lines in this pandemic, helping folks get their groceries, delivering goods. Um, warehouse workers, uh, but that also includes retail workers, right? Not just your grocery store, but any customer service job. I think as we go out of this moment and we have a better understanding and appreciation for those folks willing to put themselves on the front lines, especially in this moment of pandemic, do they get the respect 
that they deserve? Do they get the pay to sustain themselves and their families? There's a huge uh, outcry right now of so many different supermarkets and so many different companies that are still open, thank God, to help sustain, um, you know, life. Uh, but they're looking for positions and they're they're hiring. And it's at that same moment where, you know, prior to going into this pandemic and those positions not being respected, those positions not being paid adequately, uh, those folks not being able to take care of their families. It's important to realize that, you know, those positions are going to be hard to fill during this pandemic because so many folks understand the disrespect and how those positions and people are looked over and looked down upon. And he mentioned something else that really segues beautifully into um, this next interview that I had. Um, actually, I believe it was the same day uh, that I had with Isaiah Thomas. And that was with, uh, at the time, candidate for the Court of Common Pleas. And now she is a judge on the Court of Common Pleas here in Philadelphia, Jennifer Schultz. And when he mentioned um, being homeless, it made me think of my conversation with uh, Judge Schultz. At the time, she was running for her seat on the Court of Common Pleas. We talked very deeply about her work with the Civil Gideon Movement, um, and that focuses on providing legal aid for folks in civil cases, particularly when they're facing evictions. And this plays so much into what we're going through and what we could possibly see on the other side of this pandemic. Right now, the courts are closed. So anyone who may be possibly facing eviction won't be able to get that file within the courts. However, I know a lot of folks are struggling to pay rent. That stimulus check did not cover that much. Unemployment doesn't cover that much. And there were folks that were unemployed prior to all of this. I know for a fact that once this is over, once the courts open back up, we will see a flood of eviction cases being filed. And I am incredibly concerned with the fact that a lot of these folks, not just here in Philadelphia, but across the state and across the country, won't have the legal representation to fight some of these cases. I talked a lot about the um, the possibility of losing and winning your cases with Jennifer Soltz when you have an attorney and when you don't have an attorney. Um, 80 percent of low-income litigants and 60% of middle-income litigants do not have an attorney when they're standing wow. in front of a judge on a civil case. Wow. Yes. Um, so there's a vast gap between the level of need and the level of funding that's being provided to, per to meet that need. And what that means in practice is that um, my office, every office is always telling, we're always making these incredibly difficult decisions about who do we help and who do we say, mm. sorry, you, you have a case. You, you need help, but we cannot take your case. That's a tough decision to make. It, it's heart-wrenching. Yeah. And uh, being somebody who was running the intake process, it was often fell upon my shoulders to have to explain to people why, yes, they have need, but we are not able to help you. So you talked about some of the lobbying efforts you can do in Harrisburg to try to change um, some, some laws that you see aren't going right. What are some of those things that... Um, that would help in, in taking on more civil cases or I guess even providing more funding. Right. So I think that, um, so what we're talking about right now is really called the Civil Gideon Movement. There we go. And mm -hmm. that references Gideon v. Wainwright. That's the Supreme Court case that established in criminal cases, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be provided for you. Mm. And I just want to make clear that um, even though the, on the criminal side, the mandate of the public defenders is to meet all need, 
in truth, they are also not being funded at right. adequate levels, and they're also struggling to meet that mandate that they've been, that's been given to them. Right. Um, and so I don't want to make it sound like this is an us versus them idea. We're all in a position where... Uh, we're not the funding levels do not match the need and if you look at the historic funding levels in real dollars they're less now than they used to be mm. um, in terms of um, how what could be changed so it, it really is an, a systemic movement that needs to be addressed and uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, is involved in this. It has been for over a decade. The local, the, the state and the local bar associations are also working hard. And there are different ways to approach it. I mean, obviously, the ideal would be 100% funding for all need. Um, but we are so far from that goal. And in the meantime, it's trying to figure out how do we help people as we get closer to that ideal. Um, one of the great advances that we've had locally has been in the landlord-tenant system. And we did a study a few years ago where we looked at um, what is the impact when a person has representation in an eviction proceeding. And when a person has an attorney, they are only evicted about 5% of the time. When they do not have an attorney, it is 78% of the time. That's, that's disturbing. Yes, but the, <laughs> the good news is that it has drawn attention and there is now a movement at the local level to try and provide funding to get to a 100% representation mm. model in the landlord-tenant process. Um, and that's, I'd not, I don't believe that's been fully enacted, but that is the aim that they're now trying to accomplish mm. at the local level. Um, and, that, and that also uh, has really been uh, guided by looking at what New York did. Because a few years ago, I think five years ago, New York City said, well, let's do that. Let's give 100% representation. If somebody's facing an eviction, and they will get an attorney when they walk into landlord-tenant court. And it has had a massive impact on um, tenants' rights in New York City. And it actually saves money. And the studies that have been done here in Philadelphia also demonstrate it's over a 12 to 1% return on the investment. So for every dollar you spend providing an attorney, you save $12 in other city services that mm. a person would need to access if they were to face an eviction. That was my conversation with Jennifer Schultz. She is currently a judge for the Court of Common Pleas. And coming up after the break, we'll talk about education. Here at Salah's Corner, I am always looking to connect with new people, hear new perspectives, and share new stories. And right now, I want to hear from you. Email me at realtalk at salazcorner.com and we can get your story featured on our next episode. Tell me how you both feel about this. So I was just reading an article from Forbes and it talked about how the city of Philadelphia, uh, the school district of Philadelphia, has a shortfall of 304 million dollars that could potentially close more schools because we've already closed i think it was what like 23 mm -hmm. or something like that lay off thousands of workers teachers cut resources and programs and all everything that comes with not be having 304 million dollars the state is building a uh prison mm -hmm. for 400 million dollars at the same time this is another fact of that at the same time the state over the last few uh budget cycles has had a surplus upwards mm -hmm. of over $200 million. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that was a question I posed to Leah and Sadidra. Um, I had a good interview with them. Uh, they represent uh, paraprofessionals, uh, hashtag parapower on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and paraprofessionals are those individuals who, you know, support the teacher, but also support more importantly, really support the students, your special education assistants, your bilingual assistants, your all of those individuals that work in the classroom, um, teachers aides that really help guide the learning and do a lot of one on one time. And as you will hear from Lee and Sadidra, our personal confidants in a lot of cases to students who have trouble conditions at home, uh, have troubles with other students in the classroom and outside of the classroom and bring a lot of their um, learning obstacles, a lot of the things that's on their mind and hindering their success into the classroom. And it just made me think of and this just made me think of how we're navigating education in the space of this pandemic. Um, are we reaching those students who have troubles at home? Are we reaching those students who have uh, learning disabilities and obstacles on being able to get online and connect with teachers? And, you know, I, I think of how inadequate our school system was prior to this. And I can only imagine some of the struggles that a lot of parents and students are facing given this pandemic. But let's hear from Leah and Sadidra and talk about the burden that a lot of paraprofessionals have, some of the things that they were asking for prior to this pandemic. And just think about the, the presence that is missed now that students aren't in school. Uh, yeah, I personally have a problem with um, the school to prison pipeline situation. $400 million to build a prison um, when it's only 300 plus million dollars to, you know, make sure our schools are fully staffed. I feel like the district is saying, I don't care if these children, you know, go to jail. I don't care if they go to prison. Um, they're not investing in the future of our children. They're investing in their own pockets and greed and offices that cost over half a million dollars. So, yeah. there, There's a direct profit margin yes. to not funding education because those individuals end up right into the prison system mm -hmm. and you're yes. funding mm -hmm. you're funding you're that. funding that directly yes. essentially yes because if it's cheap labor it's like these people if inmates are happy to a get out of their cell b make a little money off a of commissary for a commissary but you also have on the other and you have companies that can make it so they can have somebody do call center and only pay them 15 cents an hour versus somebody as in a call center in the office that you got to pay them at least $12 an hour. <laughs> I tell everyone to watch um, to watch Ava uh, the 13th. It's really, yeah. really informative. Um, it talks so much about um, how the federal, you know, our federal justice system just, you know, doesn't care about our children. Now that I'm working with the Working Educators Caucus, you know, I see now how the district plays a role in that as well, so. How, yeah. how is that relationship with the Working Educators Caucus? We created uh, something called Hashtag Parapower. Mm -hmm. I've seen that on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would say it really helped to bring paras across the district together to talk about the main issues and concerns that's going on in each school. Um, after paras, you know, talked and organized, uh, we came up with the Parapower Manifesto, and, and, and that is a list of things we feel like should be enforced in the contract, because it's, probably, it's in the contract, but it's not being enforced, 
and also things that's not in the contract um, that we really feel needs to be in there and also enforced. So you gave me that uh, Parapower Manifesto. Um, this is why we fight a fair living wage, be actively included on building committees and their meetings, real professional development and relevant trainings that pertain to the work they actually do. More pathways to certification as teachers and counselors, more respect and better job conditions in our school. It's kind of sad that it is 2020 and like this, this has to be, I mean, this is basically just, yeah. this is so simple. Like this is yeah. so simple in, in a sense of like as a professional, as someone who's taking care of, of the next generation and is trying to to build a stronger community, you mm-hmm. have to ask to be respected on your job. I feel like it's it's like a hierarchy sometimes. It is a hierarchy. In the schools. I When I work with a student, I tell them, you know, to treat the janitor as if he was the president. Hmm. Because I worked with a principal and many people that started, you know, as an assistant. And, you know, they made their way up all the way to working at, you know, 440. So you never know who you may be talking to. So like I said, it's like a hierarchy. So paras aren't really respected in the district. Um, Some people believe maybe it's because you only, it's only required that you have a high school diploma. Mm. You know, some people have that feelings because it's mostly black and brown you know minority and women people you know and it's mostly women so it's like uh, when you think about women when you think about black and brown people you know when you just think of that aspect that group my group is not uh, isn't already respected so then when you work in a school with people that may have like you know doctors or masters and you know things like that sometimes you're just they're they just look down i don't know why but I listed a couple theories on why, maybe why they do it. Um, and Para Power is hoping to change that mindset. Like we're important. We, you know, a lot of a lot of parents in the district have higher education. You know, they maybe had to stop going to school because they couldn't no longer afford the courses. And the the district provides tuition reimbursement. But it's not nearly enough. It's you know. $50. And, and then if you $50. look at $50 per credit. $50. So a class is approximately, you you get approximately $150 a class. And that's nothing. That's like, and then you think about our salaries. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. we're trying to, you know, bring this to the forefront. Like, hey, we need to be respected. You know, we take our job serious. I love my job. And, you know, some people all, you know, say, well, if you, you know, if you're not making enough money, if you feel like you're not being respected, why won't you just find a new job? Yeah, find a new job. And well, it's like. Become a teacher. Like, yeah, yeah. In the 80s, you know, teachers had to strike to get paid, you know, livable wages. A lot of teachers back in the 80s and 90s had like two jobs. My, when I was in high school, um, shout out to engineering and science. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, my high school teacher, she had, um, she was a waitress. You know, when SEPTA, SEPTA, I would say SEPTA have really good benefits and, you know, good 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 salaries but when they're not making enough money they're they're shutting a whole city down you know i remember it was one time i couldn't go to work because the buses wasn't running because they were on strike you know and we have 13,000 members we had like i believe 21 22 it shrunk by 40 percent um we need to start using our members and using you know Para is just a you know a small part of the thirteen thousand to bring attention to you know problems like this like respect and you know um to which higher tuition reimbursement and you know things of, like that. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize how much paras do. Yeah, para. Okay, so 
if you look at it from a child's point of view, teachers, it's like teachers are up here. They're in part of grades. They call your mama, mm-hmm. all of them. And then you have your paras and your climate staff. A lot of students will go to a para first. Paras are the ones where all of the information was going on in somebody's house. And a lot of times we don't get that respect. Or some teachers will go, mm, okay, honey, mm-hmm. sure. You know, and we're just asking for a little, a lot of respect. Like, unless you work with a para, you don't know how important they are. Yeah, I see that. I see that all the time. And uh, to piggyback off of Leah, paras are in the communities where most of these students live, whereas, you know, the psychologists, and I'm not, you know, teachers downing them or, you know, anything like that because they have a, they have a right to live wherever they want to live. But paras are in the communities with the students that's in these urban, you know, schools, you know, that does that don't have a lot of funding and and like Leah said sometimes the students will come go to the pairs first because you know they can just relate that was my conversation or a segment of my conversation with Leah and Sadidra um, the working educators caucus and paraprofessionals hashtag parapower on social media and I just think of the struggles that a lot of students and parents are going through some of the struggles that teachers are going through trying to educate those students at home administrators are going through uh, already being underfunded, already being out-resourced, uh, trying to make sure that we stay with some type of curriculum for our students and me personally going through that with students at home. And just something to consider as we come out of this pandemic, some of the struggles that we were in prior to this and understanding that it's because of the system that we had in place. It's because of our economics. It's because of our legal system. It's because of our education system that has made this pandemic so much harder for a lot of folk. And there's a common trope and a common phrase that's been said all over social media. I'm seeing newscasters say this. I'm seeing all of the ads that's popping up that's saying, you know, we're all in this together, except we're not. We're not all in this together. If you're black, you have a very different existence than if you were white during this pandemic. If you are wealthy, you have a very different existence than the poor. And if you're receiving unemployment checks or you got a stimulus check, you're very different from those who have not. From those like me who can go to the supermarket and have no trouble buying food. Maybe I got to go to a supermarket here or there. For others, they're standing in food lines and hoping for baskets of food being delivered to their homes. We are not all in this together. And it's important to note that. And it's important to consider why we are not all in this together and what society will look like coming out of this pandemic. And let's be real, this moment is not easy. Healthcare workers are going through a mental hell right now. And I know a lot of families are going through the same, especially for those who have lost loved ones. Students are left in limbo. Parents are pulling hair out, trying to figure out what bills to pay. But it's important to understand and recognize the structural failures that brought us here that is causing such rifts and such disparities in our experiences in this pandemic and understand that they cannot exist if we expect society to continue, if we expect society to thrive. And if we really are all in this together, how can we make sure that we are all successful in this together? Thank you for always listening in. Please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's how others can find this platform. And as always, until next time, peace, y'all.